You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is its earthy realism. It understands the world we live in, the good, the bad, the grief, and the joys. It also understands how we feel about life's injustices, especially when we see people who mock the notion of God enjoying success. Nothing seems to go wrong for them. If God is truly good and all-powerful, we think, why doesn't he do something? Let me say, true faith is always going to have questions like this. In fact, faith that refuses to ask these kinds of questions it one, is one that leaves itself open to contempt. Because true faith will want to address tough questions and be willing to work through the doubts that arise. Now, it's important to note here that to have doubts is not to lack faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt and unbelief are two different things. Doubt is something that only a believer can experience, for you can only doubt what you believe. So with those thoughts in mind, come with me to the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 73. It's a reflection written by a man who experienced doubt. He came within a hair's breadth of abandoning his faith in God. Just look at verse 2. But as for meat, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And yet by the end of the psalm, he tells us that he felt closer to God than ever before. And so we read in verse 28, But for me it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. And it's as the psalm unfolds, we learn of the psalm writer's spiritual story, how he progressed from doubt to a surer trust in God. Now the psalm writer's question is framed around a theological principle. No, don't be frightened at the language of theological principles. I'm not going to get into that in detail. But there is a theological principle that he enunciates in verse 1. God is good to the pure in heart, or the upright. Why is it, he is asking, that many who are godless find life easy while I suffer? His bitterness flows from verses 3 right through 11. And it's as though he's saying, come on, let's face it. Whatever we might hear when, and say when we go to church, it's the self-centered and the proud, the deceitful and the ruthless people who seem to succeed in life. They enjoy good health, great wealth. Nothing seems to bring them down. No one seems to be able to call them to account. They even get rewarded for their crimes with popularity. God is irrelevant, they mock, rejecting any thought of divine retribution. Justice is the issue that troubles the psalm writer. Just look at verse 13. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean 
and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and am punished every morning. The Bible regularly says that God is good to the pure in heart. But again and again, as the psalm writer looked around, he sees the success of the godless. And we understand what he means. We hear of the appalling case of of child abuse. Many of them remain unresolved. The perpetrators walk free. We read of corporate leaders who have taken millions for themselves and have no sense of responsibility to employees or shareholders who in some occasions have lost all their assets. We read of dictators who, having cruelly exploited their people, live and feast in the luxury of their palatial homes. It's an unjust world, the writer is saying. But when we think about it, injustice often only becomes an issue for us when it personally touches us. And it's here that the first person singular pronouns of the psalm that gives the psalm writer away. Look what he says in verse verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And when we think about it, it's the same with us today. It's that perpendicular pronoun, I, that gives us away. And so we ask, Lord, why me? Doubt. Every true believer will have doubts from time to time. What then is the solution to our doubts? Just look at verse 15. If I had said, I will talk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until what? Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Just think about those words. It was wearisome to me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Why was going to the sanctuary of God so helpful? Well, going to the sanctuary in the Old Testament times was like us going to church today. It was for the gathering of God's people and in the best times in the sanctuary of God, the word of God was not only read, it was believed and taught. And it's the same in good churches today. In good churches, and sadly there are too many that are not good, but in good churches, the Bible is believed to be God's word, to be his authentic, written self-revelation. And it's preached like that. This is God's word, God speaking to us. Good churches, in bringing us the word of God, put God at the centre of our vision. And that's so vitally important for us. 
For it's only when God is at the centre of our vision that we begin to see life and the injustices of life around us for what they really are. You know, we human beings are like the moon. We live on borrowed light. It's not until we turn our face towards God, who is the source of true light, that we begin to see the truth about life. As long as we put little me at the centre of life, our vision of life will be distorted. So good churches in bringing us the word of God faithfully and clearly can deliver us from our self-absorption. When we look at this idea through the lens of the New Testament, and especially through John's Gospel, where we read in chapter 8 and verse 12 the words of Jesus, God's one and only Son, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the first step out of doubt is to turn away from the problem and catch a glimpse of God. So going to a church that believes and connects the, the dots of the Bible for us is a great way to start. And we need to do this regularly, not just occasionally. Now, it's important we think about this. Glenn Scrivener, in his book, The Air We Breathe, it came out last year. It's a book I recommend to everyone to get hold of and read. He writes of the immense reforming influence that Christianity has had on the whole of the world, but especially on Western society. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, Christian ideas and values, including our sense of justice, are the air we breathe that's been handed down from the time of Jesus. The Roman Empire didn't give us a sense of justice. Christianity, that's birthed in Jesus, and the whole of the Old Testament that led up to his coming amongst us, that's the air we breathe. So Scrivener asks the question, if we are something that's come into existence by chance, where do we get our sense of right and wrong? And at one point he draws from C.S. Lewis's illustration of a line. How do we know a line is crooked unless we're aware of a line that is straight? In Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just, unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? At the point where Scrivener is quoting Lewis, Scrivener is writing about child sex abuse. And he comments, it's the goodness of Jesus that defines the evil 
of such abuse. Come back to Psalm 73. When the psalm writer sat under God's word, he learned that we live in a moral universe where justice will prevail. Look at the second part of verse 17. Then I perceive their end. Truly you set them, set them on a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. You see what the writer is saying. God has got a bigger plan. Justice will be done. So my question is this. Do you really believe it? Now, talk of an end of time and judgment isn't at all popular these days. But the fact is, as far as the Bible is concerned, these things are dreadfully real. And if we think about it, if they weren't real, there'd be no hope for goodness in this world. It's only because the God who's made the world intends to give his moral verdict on human history that we dare to believe that goodness matters. Without judgment, God and the world are reduced to moral indifference. To reckon that goodness and justice are important, we've got to believe that the future counts. And just because the future can't be seen doesn't mean that it's imaginary. God sees it, even if we don't. The reality is, as we learn from the pages of the New Testament and even Jesus' own teaching, a time will come when we'll all stand before God. Can we be sure of that? Yes, certainly. Jesus himself predicted his death and his resurrection and in turn the fall of Jerusalem. Think about it. He did die. He did rise again. And Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD. His prediction about his final return has yet to happen. So three out of the four have come true. Why not the fourth? When the psalm writer went to church, he saw life and its meaning from God's perspective. So we read in verse 20, they're like a dream when one awakes on awakening or awaking, you despise their phantoms. Have you ever had one of those nightmares when you wake up suddenly because you're sweating with anxiety? You switch on the light and suddenly you laugh at your foolishness. It all seems so real, but it wasn't. Once you wake up, you realize it was all an illusion. That's how God sees the prosperity of the wicked. It's not real because it doesn't last. J.D. Rockefeller, one of those New York extraordinarily wealthy men, when he died, the press were anxious to ask his attorney how much he left. And a quiet voice said, everything. One day we will wake and realize that all those material things we long for 
chased after, will fade into the mist. Indeed, there's probably no more terrible judgment on godless men and women than the fact that one day God will ignore them forever. Jesus himself says it in that parable that we heard from Luke chapter 12 this morning, the parable of the rich fool. The the parable that tells us of the man who was so consumed with self-interest and material success that he is planning out his future. What shall I do? And Jesus comments, You fool, this night your soul will be demanded of you. You fool. What chilling words to hear from the Lord of the universe. What a terrifying nightmare to be despised by the living God. When the psalm writer went to church and put God at the centre of his vision, he was able to see just how precarious is the prosperity of the godless. It's not going to last, he realised. So as the psalm writer reflected on these things, he came to his senses about himself. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast towards you. You know, part of our trouble is that once we get into morbid introspection about things, it very very soon becomes a vicious circle. We don't feel like listening to God's word. We don't feel like going to church. We'd rather wallow in self-pity and feed our resentment towards God. And so we lock ourselves in the dungeon of our thoughts and throw away the key. Our darkness grows deeper and deeper. Our disillusionment turns into despair. Begin to see why reading our Bible regularly is so important. Why coming to church regularly is so important. We need to keep on hearing God's word. If we don't discipline ourselves to read the Bible regularly, go to church regularly, put God at the centre of our lives, then when doubts and questions arise, we would not have the bigger perspective of God's word to continue on. But as soon as we open our hearts to God's word, we see ourselves as we really are. We see things about ourselves that perhaps we'd rather not see. We see the sulkiness of our behaviour, perhaps the childishness of our resentment. We see how pathetic our self-pity is when we say, I envy the arrogant. And we kick ourselves when we realise just how stupid we were. The psalm writer also discovered something else about himself. Like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable that we read in Luke chapter 15, the psalm writer learned that God loved him. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, speaking to God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. 
and afterward you will receive me into glory. So as long as we stay away from reading our Bible, as long as we stay away from church, we can hide from this reality. Perhaps you will hear a subtle voice saying, well, you're not really one of God's children. How can you be? Thinking this way that you do about God, having all these doubts? To hear God's word in the company of others is a rich gift from God. It prompts us to see our doubts for what they are, opening our eyes to the meaning of our faith and growing in the riches of God's love for us. Day by day, God holds us by the hand and guides us with his counsel and will bring us to glory. Well, friends, we have a far greater assurance of of this future reality because we live on the other side of the life and the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. His offer of forgiveness and new life with God forever and not an empty promise. On the afternoon when Jesus was dying on a cross on Calvary's hill, joining you and me in the death that we deserve to die, one of the two men who was crucified with him called out to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replied, Today you'll be with me in paradise. I can assure you, Jesus is saying, your dying will not be without hope. There'll be no hell. There'll be no purgatory, no delay. Today you'll be with me. And Jesus' words that day ring down through the centuries. Every one of us who puts, who turns to Jesus in true repentance and in faith, everyone who puts their life in his hands can be assured of life with him in all of its fullness, joy and glory forever. So let me ask, Where are you today in your relationship with the Lord Jesus? Where are you in your longing for family and friends, work colleagues, to know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives? Do you pray for them? Do you also pray for those who make your life who make your faith difficult. Do you pray for them that they too might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late? C.S. Lewis once wrote, all your life you have, all your life an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you've lost it forever. <clears throat>